This is an ABC podcast. Hi, this is David Rutledge with you for the Philosopher's Zone once again. Welcome to the program. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and theologian who had the singular misfortune to be reaching the peak of his career during the Nazi era. His opposition to Hitler took a fateful turn in 1944 when he became involved in the plot to assassinate the Führer. The plot failed and the conspirators, along with Bonhoeffer, were hanged in April 1945. So that's the potted history, but Bonhoeffer's actions have had a lasting ripple effect through ethics and political philosophy ever since. He raises a number of questions that have to do with the scope and limits of civil disobedience and the circumstances under which political violence might be justifiable. And of course, these are all questions with an uncomfortably contemporary ring to them. This story from Patrick Stokes. I think Bonhoeffer would not recognise the ways in which he has been institutionalised in the modern world. I don't think he would recognise himself in many of the depictions of him that exist in, let's say, a more popular or secular sense. A year since the unrest erupted across the nation, the defiance and passion remain strong. When I see some American evangelicals just writing about this, I become suspicious. Like, you're not really wrestling with your conscience in this scenario. You're just taking this second hand from someone who, in an existential moment, really grappled with this. Like, that's something you can learn from Bonhoeffer. Where students armed with petrol bombs. Uh, he, he has come to represent and has come to stand as a symbol for opposition to the Nazis and as a uh, person who stood against the Nazis, but not necessarily through an understanding of what his principles were based on um, or indeed the theological positioning that he took. The second decade of the 21st century has drawn to a close amid popular unrest from Hong Kong to Chile, from the yellow vests of Paris to the global extinction rebellion. All over the world, it seems, people are debating whether the usual order of things has broken down and what such a state of affairs might then demand of us. How are we to navigate such a moment? One voice we might look to for guidance was an ethicist and theologian who committed himself to resistance and to the guilt and consequences that resistance entailed. At dawn on the 9th of April, 1945, seven men are stripped and led into the execution yard at Flossenburg concentration camp. Just two weeks from now, this camp will be liberated in less than a month, Adolf Hitler will be dead and the war in Europe over. But today, these seven German men will be hanged for alleged involvement in a plot to kill Hitler. Among them is Admiral Wilhelm Canaris, the former head of German military intelligence, and a 39-year-old Lutheran pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So he was then hung by a piano wire on April 9th, 1945, which always strikes me as quite poignant. Dr Petra Brown is lecturer in philosophy at Deakin University and the author of the recent book Bonhoeffer, 
God's conspirator in a state of exception. So there's lots of people who speculate. They say, well, he wasn't really a conspirator because he, or he was never really part of the assassination. He never strapped any bombs to himself or carried that suitcase or anything like that. And in fact, by the time that occurred, he was already imprisoned. But he was actually quite key in the involvement in the conspiracy because he had these what we call ecumenical church contact. He was a pastor and a theologian. And before the war, he had been very active in the worldwide ecumenical movement. So he had some key contacts outside of Germany. And when he was recruited Within the app, where so there was a resistance cell within the app, where the military intelligence, a hotbed of resistors, you might say, and he was recruited and he became a military agent, an in- intelligence agent. So he would ostensibly go to his ecumenical contacts to gather information, intel about what the Allies might be doing. But in fact, he was giving his ecumenical context, contact information about what the resistance was doing in Germany and in, in, within the war. In the decades since his death, Bonhoeffer's name has become a shibboleth for people right across the political spectrum. He's been invoked by politicians from Kevin Rudd to George W. Bush and by left-wing activists and religious conservatives alike. Everyone, it seems, gets the Bonhoeffer they're looking for. In the English-speaking world, his actions come to be seen as that of a martyr, a Christian martyr. He has a statue at Westminster Abbey. But in Germany, for a very long time, he wasn't considered to be a Christian martyr because his actions were seen as political. And there was this discomfort with how some of those actions were acting against the government at the time, even if it was a rogue regime. So the idea of a Christian martyrdom is really developed by the English-speaking world. Those who saw Bonhoeffer as involved in the assassination or attempted assassination of Hitler after the war, even those who had been in the Confessing Church movement, often actively condemned Bonhoeffer for that action because their notion was one of an absolute principle, thou shalt not kill. Dr Samuel Caney is an historian with a particular interest in the German churches during the Nazi period. When the National Socialists came to power, there's actually a very, very complex relationship between the churches and the National Socialist government. Within the Protestant churches, the two big parties that formed were the German Christian movement attempting to bring racial ideology into Protestantism and what became known as the Bekennen der Kirche, the confessing church, which argued instead that you had to remain biblical, scriptural, and that you had to maintain the faith of the Protestant confessions. Uh, The German Christians were very theologically liberal in their approach, Um, so their concepts were that you could adjust and change the teachings of the church to accommodate new or modern trends. But by opposition to that, of course, you had conservative theologians, uh, people who followed Orthodox Christianity, for instance, stating quite clearly that they could not accept the racial ideology of the Nazis. When you consider that, of course, a fundamental part of Orthodox Christian teaching is that Jesus is Jewish and has to be Jewish in order to fit into the messianic narrative that he becomes the saviour of the world, you can see the fundamental disjunction that occurred between what the Nazis were teaching and what the church traditionally had taught. You find conflicts even within congregations, down to the congregational level, where people are marching in in their Sturmabteilung or Stormtrooper uniform, the brown shirt uniform, and being refused communion by their pastor 
And at that level, you could see splits existing within congregations. There were people who refused to accept communion, the means of the sacraments, the means of communion from their pastors, because their pastors were German Christians as well. For someone to stand up and make a public statement about this also took courage in the sense that they knew what the consequences would be. There was always the intention of the Nazi government, of course. They made the concentration camps public because it was a lesson that they wished the entire public to learn, uh, and learned it was. So he was arrested um, in 1943, April 1943, so that ended his active involvement in um, in the resistance, he wasn't able to do any more kind of tasks assigned to him. Um, his name at the time had drawn the attention of authorities, but there was no conclusive evidence about his involvement in anything. They're just suspicious. Um, and so he was in prison and interrogated at the time. And he just maintained, played a, I'm a humble pastor card, what would I know? And also maintained, you know, his facade as an agent or um, gathering intel for the military, German military intelligence. He said, I've just done what you asked me to do. But after the plot, um, in July 1944, after the failure of that last assassination attempt, a whole bunch of papers were found and that implicated Bonhoeffer and others. And there's some eyewitness testimonies as to his last weeks and days. And one of these is actually the very day before he's executed. The witness recounts that Bonhoeffer led a small church service in a classroom, a transit point where they were, had to stop. And so he led this small church service, and just as he finished his last prayer, he was taken and escorted away to be executed. So as he left that room, he said to um, the eyewitness here, um, this is the end, for me, the beginning of life. And that's the very last phrase that we kind of have of Bonhoeffer's, and it's often used by biographers to kind of round out or <laughs> finish the biography more or less. So why has Bonhoeffer's example been so politically useful for such a divergent range of people? One answer might lie in Bonhoeffer's own radical transformation, from a pacifist committed to an ethic of non-violence to a conspirator to assassination. This is RN, and you're in the Philosopher's Zone. This week, Patrick Stokes is joined by Petra Brown, lecturer in philosophy at Deakin University, and historian Samuel Caney from the University of Melbourne. They're exploring the life and legacy of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Nazi-era German theologian whose willingness to transgress the limits of moral acceptability in order to stop Hitler has had ethicists and political philosophers wondering ever since where we should draw the line when it comes to principled resistance and civil disobedience. Dietrich Bonhoeffer may be famous as the priest who plotted to kill Hitler, but as Dr. Petra Brown explains, Bonhoeffer started out with a completely different attitude to political violence. Bonhoeffer is most famous or infamous, I suppose, as a political resistor in the Second World War, particularly for his involvement in the plot to assassinate Hitler. 
But that's not where he began. So he actually began um, as a pastor and a theologian and a pacifist protester to start before the breakout of the war. And that really shapes also his writing and how he thinks about his later conspiracy involvement. So he was born um, in 1906 and he experienced the impact of the First World War, as did many of his generation, partly because his brother Klaus um, fought in the war and died. And um, later he, as many did in that generation, could see the impact of the war both in German society and culture and also also shaped his own responses to as national socialism grew. And he has an interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount where he specifically argues that to be a follower of Christ, to be obedient to Christ's command, we are commanded to love our enemies. Um, and he writes this during his pacifist protest phase in the 1930s. And he writes this to train some emerging young pastors in this new church that he's trying to establish with others, including Karl Barth, the Confessing Church, as a kind of act of resistance against national socialism and the infiltration of the German church at the time. As the Nazi atrocities mounted up, however, German pacifists found their beliefs deeply shaken, as Dr Samuel Caney explains. Those who were members of the Confessing Church, and I would argue Bonhoeffer amongst them, did not feel that they were in a just war situation. Um, This was very much a war of aggression pursued by the Nazis. Um, And I do believe that uh, much of his interpretation of what was valid or right for a Christian to pursue drove his sense of pacifism. At the same time, I think what happened to a number of those uh, who were involved in the Confessing Church, and not not least in the course Bonhoeffer, during the war was the realisation of the sheer scope and scale of the evil, as they saw it, that was being done by the Nazis in pursuing both imperialist goals and particularly in pursuing what they saw as a racial war. Now, I think for Bonhoeffer, This explains some of what occurs in terms of his shift from certainly pacifism to an idea that perhaps in certain circumstances a greater sense of preserving truth and and the just um, might be served by being willing to participate in action against a leader like Hitler. And this is where the theological Bonhoeffer shifts to the political Bonhoeffer a transition we see play out in his writings. And in his manuscript, he really tries hard to think about what kind of action might be required in what he calls an extraordinary situation, a kind of situation where you need to act in a way that would just be inconceivable in a peacetime scenario. So that manuscript, he writes at that time, during his peak involvement as a conspirator, and he rewrites, it's the only manuscript that he rewrites. So it's an indication of how he really grappled with his own decisions and his own actions at that time. And he really, because he's a theologian, he does it theologically through his own reinterpretation of the Sermon on the Mount, Um, And that comes through, but he also draws on the work of the um, political philosopher Machiavelli. And he directly references Machiavelli's necessita as sometimes a prince is required to act in beastly ways, I think is the phrase that Machiavelli uses um, in order to, for the greater good effectively. And so that 
explicit political reference to Machiavelli appears at that point. But there's two things, an event and a manuscript that are connected. So in 1942, in June, he meets, he goes to Sweden, neutral territory, and meets with um, Bishop uh, Bishop Bell, who's um, obviously an, he's a friend. He's both a friend, an English bishop, and a member of the House of Lords. And he gives specific information about the plans of the resistance um, to Bishop Bell to bring back, take back to the Allies. So while Bonhoeffer is over there exchanging this information and basically for looking from uh, the perspective of national socialism, it's a, he's engaged in treason, right? He's betraying his own country by giving, by seeking to overthrow the existing government and, and feeding this information to the enemy. It's, it's linked to um, his concept of the extraordinary situation and how we might have to act if life's basic necessities are threatened in some way. That notion of the extraordinary situation, a state in which the normal ethical rules or limits must be suspended, helps to explain the wide uses, and perhaps abuses, of Bonhoeffer's life and work. Pacifist protesters in the 1960s and 70s, or South America and South Africa, has been used to end forms of oppression or to to critique forms of political oppression, including apartheid in South Africa. Um, and it's mainly the pacifist protest, Bonhoeffer, the pacifist protester that they want, that they're inspired by. But by the 1980s, American evangelicals start reading Bonhoeffer, and they're much less excited by this pacifist protester and much more excited by the um, what's called a spoke in the wheel, by this conspirator who will act against a rogue state. Bonhoeffer has been enormously influential among contemporary evangelicals. But in some ways, it's actually an awkward fit. The confessing church, if you were to shift that into a contemporary setting, and I think many historians would agree with that, had a very literal interpretation of scripture that would in fact place them more comfortably within the evangelical movement than not. On the other hand, it does not place them comfortably in the contemporary evangelical movement in America in many ways because those members of the confessing church felt that they were fighting the incursion of the world into what they deemed to be the absolute truth. And in particular, the pro-life movement in the 1980s. And one, I guess, a violent protester, well, he was a violent protester, Paul Hill, killed an abortion doctor in 1993 um, and a security guard, and he directly claimed Bonhoeffer as... I don't know whether it's inspiration or justification or kindred spirit. There's always these kind of, this is what Bonhoeffer would have done. It's a Bonhoeffer moment. They often refer even now to Bonhoeffer moments when we have to resist actively. Supporting the war on terror has been quoted as a Bonhoeffer moment by some evangelical writers and famous more recently voting for Donald Trump has been a Bonhoeffer moment. You see this even in America today. I'm not sure if you're aware there are American evangelical preachers and programs that are very popular, seem to have a wide coverage, uh, where they do also literally see the hand of God at work in the world, but they see it at work in the world such that anything that appears to meet um, their desired process um, is argued to be rightfully the will of God. Um, and that includes things like the presidency of Donald Trump, uh, contemporary in the contemporary world. 
because even though the values of Donald Trump clearly are not counter to many of the Christian evangelical values, nevertheless, a worse scenario is voting for Hillary. <laughs> so we have to, the other phrase that's invoked frequently, we have to dirty our hands. We have to be willing to sully our clean conscience um, and engage in activities voting for a person that you find disgusting in many ways for the greater good. This notion of dirty hands is still a heavily debated one in political philosophy today. And Bonhoeffer's contribution to that discussion is particularly sobering. Some moral philosophers will say, no, if it's required in a situation and the end justifies the means, your hands are clean, right? You don't have a guilty conscience. You've acted in the way that was required for a particular outcome. Bonhoeffer doesn't buy into that. And he actually says we actually can't really know the outcome of our actions and we can't justify it by whatever we intend to do. But sometimes we are confronted with the scenario and we have to act even though it goes against our deepest values. And we have to live with the guilt of betraying those deepest values. So we're not absolved of guilt in some way And he writes about that in one of his manuscripts. He says something like, we are justified at the time by necessity, but ultimately we stand guilty before God and we rely on his grace for forgiveness. Um, But we don't absolve ourselves from particular actions. So effectively, you're both acting in a way that you feel you must, but that also feels quite wrong. So how do we actually know when we're in an extraordinary situation and in what specific ways we might need to get our hands dirty. Is this an extraordinary situation is the first question you have to ask yourself and how do I act with responsible action in this? And you can't look to Bonhoeffer for an example because he says there are no examples. There are no precedents that justify what we're going to do next. And you can't know the outcome. There's if, if there's a range of possibilities, a range of choices, you're not in an extraordinary situation. It's just like there's a range of choices, right? Some are good and some are bad. But you're in an extraordinary situation and you must act in this way at this moment. And it's a free venture. You're risking everything, including guilt. The problem here is that it's not just the righteous who can claim a state of exception. Bonhoeffer's principle can also be flipped And that is that the Nazis had a fundamental faith in what they were doing and believed it was fundamentally right and created monstrous events as a result of that. So there's always the flip side to this. The German jurist Karl Schmidt, who's very famous for the phrase state of exception, it's a more political way to express what Bonhoeffer is saying. He would see a threat to one's own culture and way of being as a state of exception. It's an existential confrontation, you might say, that it experienced and felt in the moment. It is very convenient to just take him off the shelf and say, the what will Bonhoeffer do moment? <laughs> this is what Bonhoeffer will do, and therefore, that's what I'm going to do. Bonhoeffer himself was working through these questions. And as I said, that's the best we can get out of Bonhoeffer is actually genuinely say this is a struggle and each person has to go through this and has to decide themselves. And that's something that he would certainly 
I don't want to say that's something he would say, but I think that's true to the Bonhoeffer spirit. The other thing about Bonhoeffer and, and acting in an extraordinary situation, it often reads when you're reading his writing that an individual must grapple with their conscience. It's an individual action. But in fact, he acts as part of a resistant cell. His family's already involved. He's not some kind of lone wolf operator, right? An extraordinary situation has a social aspect to it. So have we arrived as a, at a Bonhoeffer moment? I can't answer that. Are we in a state of exception? These emerge because people perceive a state of exception, both individually and communally. But don't forget, even though Bonhoeffer considers resistance to an oppressive regime as, as part of a, a response that may occur in an extraordinary situation, Carl Schmitt theorized a state of exception, in part at least, on the basis of the state being able to defend itself and the life of the state so that governments can equally invoke the claim that we have arrived at a state of exception and we must now process our uh, refugees offshore, for example, because the situation requires it, because of necessity, um, because we must protect our borders. So the, the contravening a law can happen through resistance, but equally government can claim that kind of right as well. Perhaps we really are in a Bonhoeffer moment. Or perhaps not. Maybe the best we can hope to learn from Bonhoeffer is not how to tell the difference, but what such times might demand. I believe the lesson you probably can learn from Bonhoeffer is that people of principle can realise what is wrong, but not necessarily speak out about it. And that, that's one of the things that comes out. On the other hand, perhaps the one big lesson you can take from Bonhoeffer is sometimes you need to stand up or you end up finding yourself by silence acquiescing to a fundamental evil. He would certainly say, if you are going to act in an extraordinary situation, be prepared to accept guilt. Be prepared to accept whatever consequences there are to those actions, because that is what it is to act with responsibility. It is to take guilt on yourself and to say, yes, I accept a responsibility for this. And don't try to justify it by some kind of ends that require it. Once a person chooses that, they, they, Bonhoeff would say, you have to accept the consequences that come from that. So though in his case, he would very much hope to live and survive the war, he very well knew that he was risking his life. On RN, you've been listening to The Philosopher's Zone with Petra Brown, lecturer in philosophy at Deakin University, and historian Samuel Caney from the University of Melbourne. And that story was produced by Patrick Stokes. And that's the program for this week. I'm David Rutledge. Next week is the beginning of RN Summer, which means five weeks of highlight programs from the previous 12 months. We'll be taking a deep breath and diving into the issue of free speech on university campuses, so don't miss that one. And just a, a quick note of regret before we go. Those of you who've been regulars on our online comments section will be disappointed to learn that we no longer have a comments section. It's been decommissioned as part of the recent online upgrade. 
great. So thank you for some very lively debate. And you can always still tweet me at David P. Zone. See you next week.